Good morning. My name is Peter Kroll. I'm one of the elders for our church. Have you ever noticed that the effectiveness of a message generally depends on the quality of the messenger? For example, when I get a statement on letterhead from my bank or credit card company, I take it very seriously. But when I get an unexpected email from an alleged Sudanese prince who wants to deposit tens of millions of dollars into my bank account for safekeeping, I disregard it immediately. Some messages require your full attention and others aren't worth spending even a moment on. If this is true in financial matters, how much more important is it when the messenger claims to come from God? There are many people, there are a variety of holy books and a diversity of religious traditions. How do we know which ones to trust and which ones to discard as man-made? This is the question taken up by our text this morning. We'll be in Hebrews chapter 1. If you have one of the church Bibles, we're on page 941. The first audience for this book was struggling to understand that God's new way of communicating had superseded his old way of communicating. Our issue today is a little different than that typically since we've got many competing voices, spiritual voices even, and not simply new or old ones, but we'll need the same guidance that they needed to help us solve it. We need guidance to help us figure out who is the best messenger for heavenly messages. In particular, we'll learn from this passage That now that God's son has spoken, you couldn't ask for a better heavenly messenger. That's where we're going this morning. You couldn't ask for a better heavenly messenger. Let me pray again for our time in God's word. Our Father, please open our ears and unstop our hearts that we might hear your voice through the scripture, that especially we might hear the voice of your son, that we might be able to evaluate these competing voices from God, these voices that claim to come from God. And we ask that you would strengthen us and teach us by your word as we look at the Old Testament and what it means in light of the new. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, before I read the passage, you need to understand what's happening in the argument. This is point number one on your outline. What's happening in the argument? In the opening paragraph of the book of Hebrews, we're told that to hear God now, you must hear his son. And the author gives seven qualifications of God's son making that son the supreme channel 
for God's self-disclosure to humanity. And we looked at those seven qualifications last week. But I want to remind you that the seventh of those qualifications is given in verse 4. It's that the Son has become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. That becomes the thesis that the author must now defend in the rest of the chapter, which we're looking at today. Now, it, this verse might sound slightly confusing upon reading it, but all he's saying is that the Son is superior to angels because his name is superior to their name. <clears throat> okay, that's what he's saying. But what does that mean? How can one person's name be superior to another person's name? You should know that he's not speaking about what we might mean by a person's name. As though I could argue that Peter is a superior name to Dan. But you know what? Reese is even more superior still. I mean, who wouldn't... Who wouldn't want to name their child Reese with an amazing word with none of the usual vowels in it? No, that's not what's going on here. That's not it. The name, it says in verse 4, is something that the son has inherited. It's not just what his parents decided to call him from birth. In the ancient world, with its honor-shame cultures, a person's name had to do with their reputation. And even more, it had to do with the honor due to them. So what the author is after here is to show that the honor due to the Son is far greater than the honor due to angels. And for that reason... The son himself is superior to angels. That's his big idea. Now he must defend it. He'll do so with seven quotes from the Old Testament. Here we go. Verses 5 through 14. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, Let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, He makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the son, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain They will all wear out like a garment, like a robe. You will roll them up like a garment. They will be changed. But you 
are the same and your years will have no end. And to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? This is the Lord's word for us this morning. The author wants to show us that the honor due to the Son is superior to the honor due to the angels. And he does this through seven quotations of the Old Testament. Now, in order to grasp what these quotes are getting at, let me summarize point two for you, what you should know about angels. Because I think we read this today and we're like, so what's the big deal about angels? Why does he have to start here? When I mention angels, if the first thing you think about is naked babies with wings strumming harps, you need to reboot your mind and consider what the Bible actually says about angels. According to the Bible, when God created the heavens and the earth, he also created two families for himself. He had a human family and he had a divine family. The human family was on earth and they were commissioned to rule the earth in his name. And the divine family was in heaven and they were commissioned to serve God's purposes among humans. That divine family was made up of a variety of supernatural beings that we come across in the scripture. Some of them are called cherubim. And the way they are described, they might look something like ancient Egyptian sphinxes with paws or talons, maybe the body of a lion and the head of a human or an eagle. Those are the cherubim. There are other supernatural beings called seraphim. And they're like gigantic beasts but with multiple pairs of wings. And they may appear continually on fire. That's what the word seraphim means. Burning ones. And there are some others in the Bible that are more commonly called angels. And the word angel is not a technical term. It's, it's a normal word that simply means messengers. It's tricky because that word is, is often used of humans. And when it's used of humans, it, it gets translated in our Bibles with the word messenger. But when it's used of supernatural beings, it gets translated as angel. Sometimes those supernatural beings are also called heaven's armies or holy ones, or sons of God, or even at times they're called gods in the Old Testament. They're usually described as having a humanoid shape, easy to mistake for humans, except that there's something of a cross between bodybuilders and Navy SEALs. They're tough, they're typically armed to the teeth, once in a while, angels can blend in with groups of humans, but most of the time, 
people who come face to face with an angel believe they are about to die. So God created these two families, his human family, his divine family. He intended for them to live in harmony with the first creation. In the first creation, the Garden of Eden, the place where heaven and earth came together. At least that's how it's described by the prophets Isaiah and Ezekiel. But one of those angels, one of those supernatural beings, wanted to be something more than part of God's family in harmony with the human family. So he persuaded the first humans to doubt God's word and God's goodness to them. He tempted them to rise up and take control of the family for themselves. And as a result, they got themselves kicked out of paradise. Sometime later, humanity grew evil enough that God wiped nearly all of them out with a great flood. And as one human family, one literal blood family, began to repopulate the earth, God delegated supervision over the nations of the earth to members of his heavenly family. This is a key part of the the story of the Tower of Babel that's not often highlighted when we read or we tell that story. In Deuteronomy chapter 32, verses 8 and 9, it says that when the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance, when he divided mankind, it's referring to the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11, when he divided mankind, he fixed the borders of the peoples according to the number of the sons of God. But Yahweh's portion is his people, Jacob, his allotted heritage. You see, what, what Moses says in Deuteronomy 32 is that God, Yahweh, the Most High God, he chose the people of Israel as his own, his own portion. But the rest of the nations were delegated out to the sons of God. Those who in Job 1 present themselves to him to report on how things are going. Angels were set in authority over those nations until Israel had matured enough to lead those nations back into God's human family. However, instead of preparing those nations for reunification with Yahweh, the Most High God, many of those angelic powers rebelled and led their nations to worship themselves instead of worshiping the true God. The Bible says that when people offered sacrifices to Baal, or to Ashtoreth, or to Molech, or to Milcom, or to Bel, or to Dagon, they were offering sacrifices to demons. In other words, the gods of the nations are real. And they crave power over and attention from humanity. The point is this. That many supernatural beings that we call angels were given temporary authority over the nations of the earth. This is why Paul calls Satan in Ephesians 2 the prince of the power 
of the air. And in Ephesians 3 and Ephesians 6 and elsewhere, he refers to the other rebellious angels as rulers and authorities in the heavenly places or as cosmic powers over this present darkness or simply he refers to them at times as principalities and powers see that language washes over us because we don't understand often this whole background from the old testament those angels who remained faithful to yahweh could be entrusted to deliver his messages without distorting them. And sometimes their message was simply an instruction to go a certain place or to do a certain thing. But the most precious message those angels ever delivered in the history of Israel was the law or the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, which was given to Moses on Mount... Well, part of it was given on Mount Sinai by God through the hands of angels delivering that message. Now, what I'm saying may sound very strange to some of you. In our materialistic generation, many of us have grown insensitive toward heavenly supernatural realities. Many our friends here from Africa, I think you probably understand this better than most of the native-born Americans do because on, on your continent, you deal with these supernatural realities much more often than we do. And we can learn from you about that. Because when you actually take note about what the Bible says about supernatural beings, you, you begin to realize they play quite an important role in Scripture. And when Jesus came and he conquered them, and he took their place, that, that was a big deal. Big deal. So when you and I come to Hebrews chapter 1, we're typically, we Americans are typically terribly confused, and we can't figure out why there's so much fuss made about the Son's superiority to angels. And that's why you need to know that the Jewish people knew a lot more about angels than we do. They knew that angels are more than spiritual bicycle messengers. They're definitely not naked babies with wings, but they represent God to humanity. They were supposed to lead humanity in worship of the true God, but many of them craved power and held on to it for themselves. So if you want to hear from God, you can't beat a bona fide supernatural heavenly messenger one authorized by God to disclose to you the truth about God. So with all that in mind, we're ready to hear what Hebrews 1 has to say to us. Point number three, what you should know about God's Son. Our passage, which I read earlier, lists not one or two, but seven Old Testament quotations to demonstrate the superiority of the Son's name. These are texts that prove that the honor due to the Son far surpasses the honor due to angels. The first three quotes focus on one theme, and the second three quotes focus on a second theme, and the final quote combines both of those two themes. So even though there are seven quotes, there's just two ideas we got to get from them. Okay? 
The first set of quotes is in verses 5 and 6. And the theme of these three quotes is that the honor that God gave to angels was not the exercise of final rule, but the worship of a ruler. The honor God gave to angels was not the exercise of final rule, but the worship of a ruler. Verse 5 asks, to which of the angels did God ever say? And then it quotes from Psalm 2 that Reese has been reading and praying through for us this morning. And then 2 Samuel 7. And the unstated answer to the question, to which of the angels did God say these things? The answer is, to none of them. (laughs) He never said this to an angel. Psalm 2 is about the offspring of David, the king of Israel, to whom God would give final authority over all nations. And 2 Samuel 7 is the very chapter where God made that promise to David himself, that you will one day have a descendant who will be my son, whose kingdom will have no end. These promises were made to the human son of David on earth and not to any member of God's divine family in heaven. Then in verse 6, he quotes from Deuteronomy 32. The, the, The same song of Moses that I quoted from earlier that talked about the angels being delegated authority. And this verse here that he quotes is from the end of that song, which clearly explains that these angelic stewards are to worship the Most High God and never try to take His place. So the first theme in these three quotes is that the honor bestowed on angels is not the honor of rule, final rule, but the honor is the worship of God in subjection to His chosen human ruler that's the honor given to angels but the honor given to god's son is to be that chosen human ruler so with the son you couldn't ask for a better heavenly messenger the second set of three quotes takes up a different but related theme which is that angels were created to be servants, not to be king or creator. Angels were created to be servants, not to be king or creator. In verse 7, he quotes from Psalm 104, a beautiful poem that celebrates God as the creator of all things. And when it describes God laying beams across the waters so that he created so that the created world would be a place for him to live with his people. He also appointed his messengers, or his angels, as ministers. They are to go out into all the earth, serving God's purposes for humanity, like blowing wind or raging fire, as this verse says. It depends on whether the message contains good news for you or bad. When they deliver that message, will it be wind or fire? And then in verses 8 and 9, he quotes Psalm 45, 
which is a love song celebrating the wedding of Israel's human king. And in that poem, the king is said to be ruling as God's representative. He says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. And this king has been chosen and appointed by God. He says, God has anointed you there in verse 9. And such celebration is offered only regarding the human son of David, never over the angelic messengers. And then in verses 10 through 12, he quotes Psalm 102, which is a poem that teaches God's people how to grieve with hope. The poet is going through great affliction. But he finds tremendous security in the power and the mercy of Yahweh, creator and ruler of heaven and earth. And he takes a lot of hope in the fact that the present earth is only temporary, but the heavenly creator king is eternal. And Hebrews claims remarkably in verses 8 and 10, this is of the Son. This psalm was written... Of the Son. The the, the poem of Psalm 102, quoted there in verses 10 through 12, is not written to the original audience about a human ruler. That one is written about God Himself. But the author uses this quote in reference to the Son, because he already claimed up in verse 3, we saw it last week, That God's Son is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. He told us that the Son is God Himself. And He's a human. And therefore, a a poem written in praise of Yahweh, the God of Israel, like Psalm 102, that can be directed to the Son of God just as well. But you know who you can't do that to? The angels. You can't treat this poem as though it's about the angels. So the theme of the second group of three quotes here is that the angels are servants. They are his ministers. They are neither king nor creator. But with the son, you couldn't ask for a better heavenly messenger. And that brings us to the seventh and final quote in verse 13, which brings together both themes, the theme of rule and the theme of service. Angels are not given rule, but they are created to be servants. So in verse 13, he quotes from Psalm 110, which describes the son of David being given authority to sit in heaven at God's right hand until every one of his enemies are defeated. And as he says in 13, God has never made this declaration to angels, but only he's made that to his son. And he reminds us in verse 14 that the angels were created to be servants. And the ones that they serve are those who are to inherit salvation. He'll explain more about this great salvation in the next chapter. Just keep reading. But the point here is that the supernatural beings that we call angels are great when they when they remain faithful. They're great servants and messengers, but the honor due to them does not compare to the honor due to God's Son, who is the King. 
He is the creator. He is worthy of the angel's worship. And he is sitting at the right hand of the majesty on high in heaven to rule the entire world until all of his enemies are defeated. So with the son, you couldn't ask for a better heavenly messenger. This is what you need to know about God's son. Let me end this study with some application. I know that was a lot of heavy theology and principles. But point number four, what does this mean for those who would hear God's voice? The people who first read this book were facing tremendous pressure from the Jewish community. Pressure to return to the old way of doing things. Pressure to live according to the strict observance of Old Testament rituals. They were facing pressure to pay heed to the law given by God to Moses through angels. And these people needed to know that things had changed. God's old way of doing things has been replaced by his son. The messenger who is superior to angels because the honor due to him far surpasses the honor due to angels. So the point is that you couldn't ask for a better heavenly messenger. If you would like to hear the voice of God today, you cannot do any better than to listen to his son. And that son we now know is named Jesus. These Old Testament quotations in Hebrews 1 are all about the enthronement of Jesus as king of heaven and earth. He is an authentic descendant of David and heir to the throne. He didn't seize control for himself like some of the angels did. And the honor he has inherited goes well beyond having a palace in Jerusalem. See, Jesus has been granted the worship of angels and authority over all of humanity. This is bad news for those who will not receive Jesus as their king or listen to his voice because he will rule, as verse 13 says, until all of his enemies have been placed under his feet. But this is very good news for those who will bow to Jesus. Verse 4 tells us that Jesus has inherited supreme honor due to his most excellent name. And therefore, verse 14 says, we who honor him may now inherit salvation from him. So what does this mean for you and me? First, You don't have to try to find God. He has already sought to find you. Jesus has come to bring you into his family and to welcome you into his kingdom. You only have to honor him as the divine son, the most high king. And how can you decide which of the many voices out there actually speak for God? Among those many voices claiming to speak for God, take notice of the only one who has claimed to actually be God and who has backed up that claim by rising from the dead. 
Sure, there are many holy books, there are many religious traditions out there, but only one of them is about a divine messenger who claims to be God and who vindicated that claim by rising from the dead. So honor him. For those of you who want to experience God, to hear his voice, don't get distracted searching for divine experiences or heavenly messengers. Sure, it would be amazing to be visited by an angel or to experience a supernatural vision. These things are real. But according to Hebrews chapter 1, if you haven't had any visions or angelic voices speaking to you, you're not missing out. If you have Jesus, you have access to God's kingdom. If you listen to Jesus... You are listening to God. Delight in the salvation you inherit from Him because of the kingdom and the power and the glory that Jesus has inherited. Jesus will speak to you through this book. And as we continue in Hebrews, it will go to great length to show us how this entire book is about Jesus. Jesus is the superior word of God. You couldn't ask for a better heavenly messenger. The temptation of the original audience was to hold on to the Old Testament too tightly as though Jesus hadn't come. I think our temptation tends to be the opposite, where we skip or we ignore the Old Testament because Jesus has already come. But we do this to our peril. If we don't understand the Old Testament, we've barely got a prayer of understanding who Jesus really is or what he came to do. Because the New Testament constantly uses the Old Testament to explain these things about Jesus. So as one way to grow in listening to the voice of Jesus, I would encourage you to take some time this week to look up the seven quotations from this chapter. Read all of Psalm 2 and 2 Samuel 7, Deuteronomy 32, Psalm 104, Psalm 45, Psalm 102, and Psalm 110. And in those texts, consider the surpassing honor due to Jesus for having come to earth and having accomplished all of God's will to make salvation available to his human family. Chapter 2 will tell us that salvation is not available to the heavenly angelic family. May these words drive you into closer companionship with Jesus, your king and your elder brother. And may the Lord have mercy on us as his people and grant us grace and peace in service to King Jesus, whom we worship together with the angels because we couldn't ask for a better heavenly messenger. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we are amazed at what you have done in the Lord Jesus Christ. We couldn't ask for a better heavenly messenger. He has revealed you to us. And he is our king. He is due all honor and glory now and forever until the end until all of his enemies have been made his footstool. And so please help us to join with the angels in worshiping him. 
as we do so now, and may we do so all our days, that we might praise him and hear his voice. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you very much, Peter, for bringing the word to us this morning. Um, If you all can stand with us, we're going to um, reflect on God's word together.